Today's episode on Police Pie Talk is sponsored by Crossing Color Lines. Crossing Color Lines is an organization established to speak directly to the issues of race, culture, and ethnicity in the world today. Crossing Color Lines offers resources, tools, and guidance to help anyone along their journey towards racial healing. For more information on Crossing Color Lines, go to crossingcolorlines.org. Here we go, here we go. Welcome to Police Pod Talk. Whoop, whoop, it's the police. Don't look in your rearview mirror. This podcast covers the latest police news along with hitting the hot topics you've been talking about all week. I'm your host, Cleveland. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to Police Pod Talk, part two with Angel Dixon as she answers the tough questions we're going to pick up from where we left off. A real threat or if it's a perceived threat that's only one that you perceive that's really not a threat. In that moment, your body can't differentiate. When they perceive a threat, when you perceive a threat, you perceive a threat and your physiological response is going to kick in. Right. You can't control cortisol. You can't raise and lower your cortisol at will. <laughs> okay. So give me what you think can help. I mean, you're talking about something that everybody needs to know. Be yeah. it if you're a police officer, be it if you're a person of color. How do you fix this? How do you make it all of a sudden stop? How do you make it skip a generation or end at a generation? Will it ever happen? Well, I'll tell you what. I think, again, we're, I think we're, we're, we're seeing incremental, incremental changes. You know, where do we go from here is a great question. And so I think one of the things we have to do is we have to think, I, I think we think, um, first of all, we think we need to think methodically. We need to be rational about our thoughts. We need to sit down. I think the protests have served to get attention and get everybody kind of paying attention and focused and working towards or wanting to work towards things or having the conversation that something maybe needs to be worked out. But at this point in the game, we need to start talking about, okay, what are we asking for? What What is attainable? What is accessible? I'm always trying to bring things back to, you know, theory and conversation and identifying the problem is great. It's a great starting point. But at some point, you got to move out of the realm of theorizing into what's practical and what's accessible. Um, and that doesn't mean using that as an excuse to cop out and go, well, that's not doable, so we shouldn't worry about it. But what I'm saying is, let's start with what we can, what's in our reach, and then let's move out from there. So I think the first thing we need to, to bear in mind is, you know, with some of these protests and some of these groups that were really getting a lot of attention, what are you asking for now? America is paying attention. The world is paying attention. You know, America is a world leader. We always kind of criticize America sometimes for losing its influence and having its credibility in, in the world stage being damaged by some of our political choices and some of our leadership. And I think there is merit to that. However, when moments like this arise, you realize, you know what, people are still paying attention to America because other countries don't take up other countries, um, especially human rights issues very often um, on a public scale. I mean, even if you look at some of the demonstrations that were happening with Taiwan and China and the things that happened last year, America wasn't in the streets protesting and standing in solidarity with, with them. There's something to the role of America on the world stage that people are paying attention to. And so we need to take advantage of that and we need to begin to have something mindful and meaningful to say that other countries can follow and attach to. So um, I think we have to start with thinking about what are we asking for? And I think what's realistic and what's reasonable is to start talking about how we govern laws related to um, minorities. How does it impact minorities? So I think I'm going to start from basically the macro scale and work our way down to the personal, you know, in your own home and in your own neighborhood kind of conversation, if that's okay. Okay. You go right ahead. 
<laughs> yeah. So, so what we need to look at, first of all, is we need to address these stand your ground laws and the lack of hate crime laws. It's unfortunate that we have to have hate crime laws, but the way things are written, like, let's get specific. If you got to get specific, let's get specific and let's talk about hate crime law. And so I know right now, um, you know, we do have some legislators who are working to try and come up with some new laws. I know even in the state of Georgia right now, they're trying to hash out a new hate crime law. And it's been motivated because of obviously all the, the protests and unrest and the reality that people are not going to stand for this anymore. Um, so let's maybe repeal the standard ground law um, and, and Im- implement some hate crime laws around the country. Um, some other issues, which, which I will touch on a little bit, are, you know, obviously with policing. Here's the thing. It's really easy, again, to paint the police with a broad stroke and go, yeah, police are the entire problem and we need to just shut it all down. You know, and that's kind of a general statement, but there are some people that probably feel that way. I think we need to think about, practically speaking, you know, reorienting ourselves and reorienting the purpose of the police departments and their goals and what they're, what they're tasked with. Some people, I think, don't really think about, especially if you've never had to personally have, you know, granted, I'm not exactly sure who your demographic of your audience is, but I can tell you this. There are going to be people in this country who have never in their life had to have an interaction with police other than maybe, you know, uh, maybe a, a street, you know, traffic violation of some sort something minor or, you know, so they got a ticket or, you know, seeing them, you know, direct traffic at a construction site or an accident or seeing them direct traffic at a ball game, you know? And so some people are going to have this like Mr. Rogers neighborhood, friendly local neighborhood police officer experience. Then you're going to have other people, you know, and, and have never experienced any kind of crisis in their home or any crisis and trauma, never had to call on the police, never needed them for anything. Then you're going to have people who have, you know, they've seen people be brutalized, they've, seen, they've had family members, you know, falsely arrested, or they've had family members assaulted, or they've personally been through that. And so you're going to have different experiences and interaction with, with the police. And based on your interaction is really going to paint your your perspective on their value and on their and their necessity. But at the end of the day, in a, in a modern society, and in really any successful society, there's got to be some sort of boundaries, and there's got to be some kind of some kind of law regulation. You know, I think we've seen that you, you just can't leave people to self-regulate. Even when you look at, you know, Lord of the Flies, you can't just have one guy be in charge and run the show and call the game, you know, and just kind of, you know, you can't just be motivated and let people leave people to themselves to be motivated by their own survival instincts or their own, you know, personal desires. And so I think you've got to, you know, we have to have some kind of organized system in place. Problem is, which we talked about in our last podcast, so I won't get into all that, but is what is the system existing for and what was the goals of the, that system? Well, see, so I think, well, yes. I, hang on. Okay. You don't want to get into it, but that was going to be my next question oh, for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> because you kind of touched on it. If you're going to change the way police are doing what they're doing, yeah. you got to ask yourself, why are you changing it? And what was it meant for to begin with? Because That's someone right, asked yeah. me one time, and they said, well, mm-hmm. what did the police start for? What were they? What was their job? What was their responsibility? And then how yeah. did we get to where we're at? So you may as well get into it. That's why you're here. Okay. Okay. I didn't want to take too long, but okay. So and I know we, covered a lot this, okay. <laughs> well, we covered a lot of this pretty in depth um, in the last um, podcast, but uh, the long and short of it is that, you know, pol- policing goes back to the history of slave patrols. Um, that's when they first came, those were the initial quote unquote police forces they weren't called that at the time they were you know some of the slang language they used was um, people call them patty rollers which is connected to like slang term for irish people because typically it was predominantly white guys and so they would just call all white guys irish you know and in certain areas it was mostly irish folks but um so these you know these patty rollers would go and roam and look for slaves and black people and just regulate however they felt the need to regulate there were no actual laws really that they were trying to enforce other than you know when the fugitive slave act was you know, enacted, then it was like, go get people that have run away. And, you know, then when they expanded that to, you can go get them even out of the North and bring them back to the South. So then it just got really 
out of hand and you'd have these cats coming from the south to go up to the north and just snatching people up and whether they were free or slave former slave whatever and you know sell them into slavery do all kinds of things and so there was just it was really i mean it really was wide open but this was like the loosely organized based group that that really police departments evolved out of um and so you know it really came out of a space of trying to control a population um, and trying to demonstrate power and authority and control of one group over another group. Um, and so that's just evolved over time, again, because of the, the incremental nature of our history. So, you know, it just got more and more organized, more and more, you know, broad reaching, more and more official. I mean, you've got the Pinkertons kicking in, you know, in like the late 1800s. And they're the first ones to create a criminal database where they basically would take, they were the first ones, you know, obviously it was with the advent of the camera and kind of all coincided technology. So they use this new technology called photography and they would take pictures of criminals they had arrested and they would keep a record of them. So they started to begin this database of, you know, reoccurring offenders. Now, to be honest with you, if you look at the Pinkerton database, it's predominantly white folks. And it's, it, you know, the Pinkertons were based, I believe, in like Chicago and they were definitely a northern based organization. And some of their so some of their techniques were kind of what had been adopted in police departments and also impacted, you know, later on the FBI and things like that. However, again, it's about labeling you know, that we are the law, we're the, we're, we're the law, we determine what's right and what's wrong. And if you are outside of that parameter, then we kind of have, we can determine what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do to you. Um, and of course, it's just, it's evolved into this, started as an impetus, uh, the impetus in the beginning of it is regulating slaves, black people, keeping them marginalized, keeping them under your thumb, keeping them under control. And it's just escalated to a more sophisticated way of doing that in a lot of places. And, but again, we do need rule of law. We do need somebody to help with boundaries and regulation. So how does that look? So I think what we do is we need to shift the purpose and the thought process. So I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about what we could do different in the police department. I want to reiterate once again that um, I am not one of those people that is on one side or the other saying, well, you know, blue lives don't matter and black lives do. And I'm not saying that blue lives matter, all this kind of stuff. At the, at the end of the day, to me, I value all people and all individuals, and I believe that everyone deserves grace and they all deserve a chance for redemption. I think as long as you stay entrenched in one space and refuse to receive or hear other opinions and other views and refuse to connect um, and refuse to, to specifically come into a space of, of love and grace and acceptance, I, I find it so um, bizarre sometimes when I see and talk to certain people and I think to myself, like, the very grace and the very accommodations and the very forgiveness and really honestly grace that they demand for themselves they refuse to give to other people like how can you expect and demand grace and mercy and love and forgiveness for yourself on different mistakes you make in your life or choices you've made or things you've done and refuse to extend that to somebody else like that's just so selfish and i think that's so it's, it's nonsensical so either you operate in a place of grace or you operate in a place of judgment there's no there's no i don't think there's a place for two um, and doesn't mean that grace doesn't have room for law and doesn't have room for regulations and doesn't have room for boundaries. But it's about how is that law being meted out? How is that law being regulated? How is it being articulated? You know, because if it's a law for protection and safety, you know, and it's done in in grace, you know, that's one way. But if you're just doing it just to judge and to regulate and, you know, enforce things and push people and can control people, that's a different kind of process. And so for me, you know, I do have family members that were active members of police departments. I have three family members on both sides of my family. Um, I have a couple of good friends. Actually, um, the best man in our wedding works just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
And um, he was keeping in touch with my husband during the height of the protests there. And he was there when some very significant things occurred and was called upon to do some very important things. And so um, I understand the value of, of the lives that are represented on both sides. Doesn't mean I agree with the ideology, doesn't mean I agree with the approach, but it means I, I value these people. And so I want to make that clear at the top before I start talking about some of the shifts and transitions. And one of those shifts and transitions that I do want to start off with is I do believe that we are in a situation right now where we're, we, have a, we have a broken system. Um, and especially when you talk about the training, and you could probably speak more you know, firsthand than I could about this, but from what I've gathered from an officer to go on the force, um, there's some really broken concepts there, which I'll touch on in a moment, but really here's what we need to think about. There's about four scenarios we can be in with the police department. You can either one, hire bad folks and put them in a bad system, which obviously you're going to get bad results. You can hire good folks and put them in a bad system and you're still going to, you know, have some pretty bad results. You know, you may have less, you know, fewer bad results from having bad folks in a bad system, but, you know, still going to, you know, generate some bad results. You can hire bad folks and put them in a good system. And you are still probably going to have some, you know, craziness happen. And then, or you can hire good folks and put them in a good system. And I think, you know, that may sound a little bit pie in the sky, but I think what we have to look at right now is, you know, right now, I personally believe, I think we're hiring some good and bad folks, but they're getting put into a bad system. So regardless of whether your intentions are good or whether you have a better idea on things, the, the culture right now in policing is pretty pretty entrenched and it's pretty um, resistant to aberrating from the standard protocol. And so, and there's some reason for that. I get that you need to have some consistency in how you execute your duties. But when, you know, you're in a situation like the George Floyd situation, where literally people, you know, from outside the police departments are looking at this going, how as a human being can you stand there and watch another officer kill a, kill a man and not intervene, like not physically feel the need to intervene? Which, you know, initially I had the same thoughts, like, what in the world? Like, and I'm going to be honest, I did not watch the video. I could not handle seeing that. I, I just, I've seen enough. I know enough. I didn't need to sit there and look at it. Um, and those that need to see it, that's, I, I'm, that's fine. Like, I just, for me personally, couldn't handle it. But here's the thing. Oh, go ahead. Okay, I'm going to throw in a question here. Gotcha. There have been people that have said, well, if he wasn't a bad guy, if he didn't have run-ins with the police, if he wasn't doing something wrong, then he would have never been involved with the police to begin with. How do you, how do you answer that? Well, I think that is it's a lazy it's a lazy response to be honest with you. It's lazy because you've not looked at the situation and individual situations, and you've not what you're basically doing is saying you know every person has an interaction with the police are all bad guys. And so let's pray and hope that you don't have an interaction with the police because then suddenly you're the bad guy. And people need to have a, a more mature and a more informed response and realize that you've got to know better to know that every interaction with the police does not mean that person is a bad guy. Um, and so, but here's the thing. Um, my, my friend, Chief Cochran, was telling a story about being in academy and he was talking about a situation where basically he was in training and it was a simulation and it got intense and he was processing and just being very rational in his interaction with um, you know, the subjects that were portraying a husband and wife. And he intervened um, because a, a fight ensued between the officer and the, the actor portraying the subject. And he intervened and got his behind chewed out for intervening. And he was told, you don't ever, ever uh, intervene when there's, a, when there's a struggle between an officer and, and another individual. And it's the second you see somebody, an officer, get in, into an altercation, you jump right in. No questions asked. Oh, my gosh. That is terrifying. Like, that is a terrifying concept to think. And so, at best, 
those officers may have thought like I'm doing the right thing because I'm not intervening and at least I'm not perpetuating, you know, like who knows what's in their mind. Like, that's the other thing. We are look at people and we assume we know what's going on with them. We assume we know why they made the choices they made. But if you're a civilian, you've never known about police training, then you don't know that like they literally train you to support your brother in blue, no matter what. And that, even if that involves like an altercation that you really don't agree with. And so again, that's part of a bad system. And I think that if we could get a better system, shift the shift the mind the mindset the mentality i think even if there are bad folks in the system the good system can kind of work its way out but right now we have a culture where you're not allowed to speak up on the police department you're not supposed to point things out you're not supposed to say things so i think that's where we begin is we got to shift like some of the culture some of the other ways we can address i think some issues with police obviously kind of again from a broad perspective is um you know qualified immunity it's an interesting concept um, I think most of us know what immunity is as far as being protected from being prosecuted um, legally by based on your certain actions. You know, there's diplomatic immunity. We've heard that before, which diplomats can go into other countries, which is really bizarre. And there's been some interesting cases about that even, too, where, like, um, I think there's a recent case where, like, a diplomat's wife hit somebody right. and killed them. She's able to just escape because she's got diplomatic immunity. Like, that makes no sense. I'm not exactly sure what the purpose of diplomatic immunity really would be other than you're anticipating them doing something illegal. I mean, I understand, like, a, a cultural, you know, faux pas. I don't think you need immunity for that. You know, if it's just, I, right. whoops, I drove on the wrong side of the street. You know, I'm like, whoops, I forgot. I'm in England. I drove on the wrong side. But like, you hit somebody. I'm not sure that that qualifies you in any country in the world for you to hit and kill somebody with your negligence and be immune from prosecution or from consequences for that. So that's bizarre. So anyways, so it's a similar kind of concept for police. Um, basically that, you know, if in the course of executing your duties, some, you know, issue occurs, um, that you're protected from that, from from facing, you know, some legal prosecution, and even in some cases, civil prosecution. So, you know, right. civil law legislation and lawsuits. So, well, well, I'm, go I'm, ahead. I'm, you speak I'm, to I'm, that. I'm going. I'm going to slide in here. Okay. Yeah, jump in. <laughs> because I'm going to go back. Okay. I, I just want to make sure I understand because I know what the training he's talking about. If an <laughs> officer is involved in an altercation with someone, you as another officer don't assist by helping subdue the subject, uh, help put handcuffs on him, and then figure out what's going on. That's one thing. I mean, that's one thing. Right. But in the middle of a, uh, a fisticuffs, for you to step in and go, hey, hold on, let's me try to figure this thing out, that doesn't work that way. One officer watching another officer be involved in a fight, you were always taught you better join in. If my right. uniform gets ripped, yours better be ripped too. You better not be standing there off to the side <laughs> just watching, waiting, and then try to figure out who's who's got the right to, to punch harder. That's right. not your job at that moment. Your job at that moment is to back your brother or sister in blue, and then once you've got everything under control, now you figure out what's going on. You can tell them, hey, go have a seat. I'll, I'll talk to this suspect. I will deal with him. I will transport him. That's how you take care of it then. Got okay, it. so... <laughs> Well, I, here's I, the thing, and I think I think the situation really, and again, I'm telling this secondhand, but really the situation that really I think threw this officer is that the 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 initial contact occurred with the subject having an altercation with 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 officer with 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 my friend, and mm -hmm. so he's like sitting here thinking to himself, I need to de-escalate the situation because the the scenario was basically that he was talking to the subject's wife, and right. he was like, don't talk to my wife, you know, right. he's kind of accosting him. Uh -huh. And so he's like, okay. So he takes a step back and was like, all right. And so he's thinking of what's the next step, what's the next move to kind of deescalate the scenario. And as he's processing that, that's when the other officer jumps in and basically engages and kind of escalates the situation into right. this ordeal. And so for him, you know, again, not thinking of 
trying to be, you know, the aggressor, not trying to like, again, mm-hmm. trying to deescalate the situation in his mind. He's going, wait, 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 I'm good. Like, this is okay. Like, let me talk to him or whatever. And I think yeah. that's really how it played out. And so it wasn't about like, there's this, you know, ordeal and tussle and he's not helping subdue it. It was more of like, hold on, hold on. As it's beginning to escalate, he's saying, wait, I'm, you know, right. It, it was just, again, it was one of those in his mind, a logical response is like, I'm trying to not escalate the situation. Right. Right. And this officer you. jumped in. And I so that's you. kind of really how it plays out. So I get what you're saying. And I understand that again, there has to be some, you can't just let people run amok and go crazy and just yeah. assault officers and go nuts. I'm not saying that. <laughs> okay. um, I'm just saying, again, the goal and the, like the training was meant to train you for that scenario and train you to escalate. And maybe the other person, the, you know, exercise was supposed to escalate the situation situation. I don't know. But in my mind, again, why is and I don't know. And you maybe you tell me, is de-escalation training even part of the academy? Is oh, that even yes. something that's discovered, yeah. covered? Yes, it so, is. It is. And, and you also have to take into consideration, too, you're doing all the techniques you've been learned. And it's just not working. And this person starts to get physical. That's when right. all bets are off. I mean, you've got to control a thing. You just can't let this person get physical with you and sure. just keep shoving you around. And because and then endanger other people. Yeah, yeah. You're endangering me, somebody else. No, you've got to grab and hold control of what's going on, then figure it out. Then you can yeah. just say, hey, hey, sit people down. But let's not beat that up too much. You were talking about diplomatic immunity. No. Why do we have it and yeah. why should so, we have it? Yeah. <laughs> no, so that's what, so that I'm just saying there's, there's certain things, that, there's just this general mindset of like, just there's still a lot of liberty, I think, and there's still a lot of openness. Oh, yeah. I think right. if we create some um, some consequences, you know, and and again, it's it's just a very complicated job. Like I, again, I've never been an officer, so I don't know from personal experiences, but I know that some of the things you have to see and some of the things you have to deal with and some of the things you have to face on a daily basis, you literally have to disconnect from some of the natural human responses that you would normally have, just because mm-hmm. of the trauma you're seeing and dealing with on a daily basis. You can't take all that in and you know break down over every scenario. I get that, and so. We have to look at, I think, um, you know, some of the, there's got to be a better way to balance the humanity of an officer and how they, uh, you know, operate from a, a human standpoint, as well as from the, you know, the process of being a police officer and the, the whole the system and the expectations. Because I think there are ways to diffuse a lot of scenarios that I think, unfortunately, and probably because of own personal trauma as officers, I think we move too quickly into the let's subdue situation and they bypass a lot of the de-escalation processes. And right. I think that people are just wired again, maybe it's the fight or flight that's kicking in, but I think too often, especially with when dealing with black and minority populations, the de-escalation is taken out of the, out of the playbook and it's just goes straight to the, the physical. And I, and I think officers respond to things that they see that they maybe also misunderstand sometimes. So I think, you know, there's a lot of different things we can do differently in training even things like, you know, maybe some better human behavior training and understanding different things like, even like, um, you know, ADD, for example. So with ADD, people that have ADD, literally, they struggle with, with recall of detail. And so when you come and you're talking to somebody and you want to question them about certain specifics or certain details, it's not necessarily because they're being evasive. It could literally be because they're under duress now because they're a black person and they're terrified they're talking to an officer and you're, you know, shouting or asking specifics and you're demanding information and they're they can't even process right now the situation they're so upset right. and they're so concerned and they're so nervous and so they suddenly become evasive in their answers doesn't right. mean they're not trying to tell you the truth it's literally right. because they're struggling to you know connect with the the data the details the information um and then also you think about again depending on where they fall on the scale with add and other different issues they, they may be more fidgety they may be more like physically they don't stand still they you know and I know those are some things that officers are trained to respond to, like watch out for, you know, mm-hmm. weird hand movements and all this kind of stuff. 
under normal calm circumstances, people with certain people with ADD really don't sit still, you know, depending on if they're, you know, whatever their scenario is. And so um, I think there's some things like that, you know, and there's just some some understanding of human behavior that I think would be helpful. And I, and I guess for me, I would just love to see the goal be less about control and subduing and more about de-escalation and you know, I think it's important that, you know, as often I know police departments are sometimes underfunded and they don't have enough officers, but I think it's important to have more than one officer in most scenarios, just for safety, but also for, for clarity and perspective. And so if it does become a situation where you realize, you know what, so-and-so is off today and maybe I should take a lead whenever we interact with the public for today, I think that would be helpful. I think it would be really great to include unconscious bias training in, in police academies, I think. You know, with all the battery of tests and, you know, process that officers have to go through and the background checks and psychological tests and all these different things, you know, maybe it'd be worth implementing um, some unconscious bias screening. There's Harvard actually devised a test that kind of gives you just a baseline to kind of give you an idea of where you might have a proclivity towards bias towards certain groups of people. And they break it down in different categories. And, you know, it could be something that could be interesting and useful. And it wouldn't be something that would necessarily keep an officer from being hired. But at least you bear that in mind when you start to see like, okay, you know, where am I placing this person? Or um, when they start, when there starts to be like an ongoing list of complaints from a certain part of town or a certain people group, like if women are constantly complaining about this man, there might be, he might have an issue with women. You know, <laughs> if there's a constant complaint about, you know, from in a, in a Latin community or a black community or whatever, maybe this officer has an issue with this particular community. And so let's not just sweep that under the, you know, the blue line and let's look at maybe, you know, these are people, you know, and, and officers are not robots. So they do have, you know, their experiences and their and their thoughts and their bias, biases will come into play. And so we need to, I think, be, pay more attention to that. Okay. Um, hang on there. Hang on there, sister. <laughs> yeah, I got gotcha. you. Because, because I know I'm going to get this question asked of me. Well, no, this has been asked before. That, that everyone's pushing for the police to be trained in different ways. Train them in this. They need to be trained to talk this way. They need to de-escalate yeah. this. They, and then they always say, well, why are you so concerned about the police being trained? Why not train the people? The, how to respond to police. How should they act when the police come around? The do's and don'ts, okay? And I know that's been the big thing. And uh-huh. that, that's why you keep seeing, well, blue lives matter. And then, hey, tr- don't worry about any us. You should be worrying about your behavior. I mean, what do you say to people when they say that? I stomped Angel before she could answer that question. Tune into part three and hear Angel's answer right here on Police Pod Talk. Today's episode on Police Pod Talk is sponsored by Crossing Color Lines. Crossing Color Lines is an organization established to speak directly to the issues of race, culture, and ethnicity in the world today. Crossing Color Lines offers resources, tools, and guidance to help anyone along their journey towards racial healing. For more information on Crossing Color Lines, go to crossingcolorlines.org. 